Hello, my name is Richard Triggs and I'm the managing partner of Arate Executive and I'd like to welcome you to this Arate podcast where today's guest is Martin Moore, the CEO of CS Energy. So to explain the origins of this podcast, Arate is a Greek word that means the fulfillment of one's full potential. Or as Homer, the famous Greek author, used the word in some of his writing, it was where heroes gather to realize their full potential. So as the managing partner of Arate Executive, we thought it would be a fantastic opportunity to have a podcast where we could invite some of the leading CEOs and non-executive directors and potentially some other interesting people to share their stories of their careers so that people who have aspirations to achieve similar or even better outcomes in terms of their own career can listen to what has been the important milestones or learnings of people who have walked the path before them and hopefully from that uh, get some insight in terms of how they can manage their own career and uh, look forward to a life of success. So this is the very first Arate podcast and our guest today is Martin Moore from CS Energy. But before I get into that, let me tell you a little bit about Arate Executive. We are, at the time of this recording, an executive search company that has been around for nearly seven years. And we specialize in recruiting CEOs, senior executives and non-executive directors for our clients across Australia. We've got some very innovative recruitment solutions where we can unbundle our service to enable organizations to get access to true headhunting and search as they would from the top global search companies, but at a fraction of the price. So if you have an appetite for executive search within your own business and we can help you, I'd welcome the opportunity to have a discussion with you about that. Please feel free to give me a call or send me an email and my details will be in the show notes. The other thing that I think you might be interested in is a LinkedIn community that we have called the CEO Incubator. And essentially the CEO Incubator was created to allow aspiring and incumbent C-suite executives and non-executive directors to have a forum where they could communicate and network with their peers across industry. It's also the portal that we now use for presenting all of our senior executive and non-executive vacancies. So if you're a member of the CEO Incubator, you will get priority consideration for these roles. It's a free group to join, so just go to LinkedIn and do a search for the group CEO Incubator, and I look forward to welcoming you into that group. Anyway, let's get on with the show, and I'll and do a search for the group CEO Incubator, and I look forward to welcoming you into that group. Anyway, let's get on with the show, and I'll introduce Martin Moore to you now. Martin Moore is Chief Executive Officer of CS Energy, a merchant generator which owns, operates and trades electricity from a portfolio of power station assets. CS Energy's assets are valued at approximately $2 billion with annual operating revenues of over $600 million. Prior to joining CS Energy, Martin spent five years at Horizon, formerly QR National, where he was an integral part of the executive team that took the company to one of the largest and most successful IPOs in Australian corporate history. 
Martin holds an executive MBA from the QUT Graduate School of Business and is a graduate of Harvard Business School's Advanced Management Program. He's also a graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors and a fellow of the Australian Institute of Management. On a personal note, Martin's married with two growing children. By his own admission, he's a sporting nut and a lover of good red wine. So let's get into our conversation now, which I hope you will enjoy. Martin, just to uh, say firstly, welcome to the Arate podcast. Really looking forward to this conversation. What's happening with you at the moment, Martin? Perhaps you can tell us a little bit about your current responsibilities and any special projects that you're working on. Sure, Richard. So, um, look, I'm currently Chief Executive Officer at uh, CS Energy. And uh, for those who don't know CS Energy, it's uh, a Queensland government-owned corporation. Uh, We're an electricity generator, so we basically... Um, generate and trade electricity into the wholesale market uh, with some large retail customers. Um, uh, Fun facts, we generated uh, about a third of all of Queensland's electricity last year uh, for distribution. Um, We are the ninth largest greenhouse polluter in uh, Australia. And so obviously with our greenhouse emissions uh, being from predominantly coal-fired power stations in our portfolio, uh, we're looking to uh, move on with the new world. So more or less to become part of the uh, solution rather than the problem. Uh, And that's obviously a pretty uh, significant issue when you think about uh, the volume of both revenue and uh, business that we do through our coal-fired business. And how long have you been in the role for? Uh, Just over two years now. So um, I came in uh, August 2013. The government then at the time, uh, which was the Campbell Newman government, had anticipated privatising these assets. Uh, And so obviously because of the privatisation work I'd done at uh, QR National, uh, which is now Horizon, uh, that was obviously very attractive to me to do um, a similar sort of thing here. Uh, changing government earlier this year obviously led to a change in policy. Now privatisation's off the table, but we're still talking about merging uh, the two Queensland government-owned generators, which is CS Energy and Stanwall Corporation. Okay, great. So what's uh, keeping you particularly busy at the moment? Well, a couple of things. So first of all, there's um, uh, obviously consultation on what structure and form uh, these um, businesses will take in Queensland. Uh, there's the normal regulatory issues uh, in terms of um, uh, renewable energy, how renewable energy is subsidised in the market, um, uh, the actual demand profile in the market, because over the last five or six years, uh, demand's been declining. Uh, the Queensland outlook looks pretty good for the next three to five years, though, because of the uh, all the liquefied natural gas projects that are opening in Gladstone. So that's adding a bunch of demand into the Queensland market. So you know, the short term looks pretty good, but of course what occupies my mind as Chief Executive is that um, business sustainability in the longer term, so five years and beyond, and where does CS Energy position itself for that. Okay, great. All right, well that's a, a great introduction to uh, your current circumstances. So Martin, uh, the purpose of this uh, podcast is really to have a conversation with you about your career and lessons learned along the way, particular milestones that you're proud of and things that uh, people who are aspiring to be a CEO or a senior executive uh, would listen to uh, as a way of learning from those who have walked the path before them. So what I'd like to do is just start off by talking, you know, about your early childhood and getting a sort of feel for, you know, what was the uh, formative moments in terms of uh, making you the man that you are today. Why don't you talk a little bit about, you know, where you were born and your family and, and early life? Sure, Richard. Um, Look, I've had a very, um, I think, probably unconventional path to where I am today, but uh, it certainly does start back in my early roots. I was born in Sydney in the uh, early 60s. My parents, Bob and Margaret Moore, were both in uh, radio and television. So 
uh, dad was a radio personality, worked for the ABC for many years, and uh, over there in those days you were a jack of all trades, so he did everything from news reading to uh, you know, calling the rugby to whatever was on, you know, hosting hosting the Queen's visits, um, calling Parliament on the radio, so he did a range of different jobs with the ABC. Uh, my mother was behind the camera as a producer, and um, she was uh, a, a real star performer from her early years. Um, she was a, an outstanding pianist. She actually um, played uh, solo performances with the Sydney Symphony Orchestra mm. as a harpsichordist. Okay. So she's a very, very talented musician and very intelligent woman. So um, she had a, a multifaceted career, which in those days was was very unusual for uh, for a female. Um, I think the most uh, interesting thing, I'm, I'm one of five siblings, so um, I have an older brother and three younger sisters. Uh, we're all very, very close, even to this day. Um, but uh, I think my parents both uh, really believed in the value of education. So, so for them it was really important that they gave the five of us the best education that money could buy, and they sacrificed a lot for that. So sure. um, it was a yeah, very, very good start in those terms. And so um, do you think that having two parents who were in their own right high achievers uh, had a, a big impact in terms of the the way that you and your brothers and sisters uh, uh, perceived your own role and, and your own aspirations in life? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's, there's no doubt about it. So all of us have, um, uh, with, with the exception of one of my siblings, uh, very, very driven to succeed in our fields. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we've all achieved um, a very strong success in our respective areas. Um, it's interesting, though, because uh, one of my sisters did sort of opt out a little bit, and she's probably the most talented of all of us, funnily enough, mm-hmm. uh, an extraordinarily talented violinist, um, but um, you know, didn't really have the drive uh, to work hard. She sort of took the other route, and, and that was fine. That was her choice. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly the environment was one of strong achievement, and I think our parents were very supportive. So um, I remember you know, always, uh, no matter how many of our, um, uh, of our siblings were doing various sporting events on a Saturday morning or a Sunday, Parents were always there on the sidelines. So whether it was, you know, a rugby match at, at um, uh, you know, Carlingford at, at King's School, whether it was, um, you know, uh, a netball game over at South Coogee, they were at everything. Mm. Friday night debating, they were always there. So okay. I always remember that support, I think, which comes across more than anything. And was your mum working uh, when she had the kids or was she more of a, a domestic engineer? No, no, no. She definitely, she definitely worked all the way through. So she right. was doing part-time okay. work all the way okay. through. Um, there were obviously you know times where she didn't and never really had childcare. So um, back in those days, you didn't have childcare centres mm-hmm. where you just drop your kids off. Or mm-hmm. um, we didn't have a great network of family and friends. My grandmother um, was alive at that point, and she did a bit. So um, so no, they they worked very very hard. And of course, dad doing shift work meant that they could work it reasonably well. There, sure. was, there was one point in time where he was doing uh, I think a, quite a graveyard shift on two CH radio, where he's sort of starting at. 10 o'clock at night going through to 2 in the morning or something so that worked well for child management during the day. Right and was he the kind of dad that uh, if you were out and about doing shopping or things uh, people would walk up to him they recognised him in the street? Oh absolutely yeah yeah he was a quite a recognisable face back then they couldn't quite work out his name because he had right. so many things but uh, aren't you the guy from and that right. was always the way it went. Okay cool. Yeah absolutely. And so uh, as I understand it uh, you did your high schooling um, in a boarding school yeah, which is a very interesting choice, actually, because um, we were never uh, destined to go to boarding school. In fact, when we were young, my parents used to threaten us with sending us to boarding school if we didn't behave, which was sort of hilarious because it came true in the end. Um, my brother was actually offered a scholarship to um, St Joseph's College at Hunters Hill, uh, which is a GPS school in Sydney, one of the top schools, and also known affectionately as the uh, Wallabies Nursery, very big okay. rugby school. Right. Yeah. So, uh, so he was offered a scholarship, and my parents um, doing the right thing because mum was scrupulously fair, uh, went in and said to them, well, look, that's that's fine, we're happy to send Nicholas here, but uh, 
it's got to be a two for the price of one deal. Right. So they gave us two half scholarships, which right. was interesting. So, okay. so we both ended up at the same school. He How much a, older than you was he? He was a year ahead of me. Okay, right. Okay. So, and of course, I was all for it. Nick was a little bit, um, uh, a little bit in two minds as to whether or not he wanted to go because mm-hmm. you know, this only came up well, four or six months before he had to start school there at boarding school and hadn't really got his head around it. But I had a year for him to test the water. Right, so I like, mate, okay. get into it, go right. for it. Yeah. If you don't like it, you can always come home. So uh-huh. we had that sort of a conversation. And he could uh, stop the guys from picking on you in your first year in the boarding house. Yeah, it didn't quite work. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it was more like, ah, oh, you're Nick Moore's brother. Let him come right. over here, sonny boy. So uh-huh. yeah, it was a bit interesting. But uh, you know, all that stuff goes on. I think ultimately it was a pretty good experience. Right. And so do you think that um, uh, being the second of five kids and also the fact that you went to boarding uh, school what kind of uh, impact did they have in terms of the way that you started to move into your career, um, either positively or negatively? Um, well, there were there were positives and negatives. I think um, I think the first thing is that Nick was was really a talented guy. Still is very very high performing guy. Extremely intelligent, very responsible. Um, you know, model child, good sportsman. So he was always like that. And coming through the year after him, of course, at school I was having the same teachers and. It was this um, uh, implicit expectation that I'd live up to the standard my brother had set, which I did um, all the way through. Um, I found that that environment though was extremely structured, so it was a it was a good environment to be in. I thrived in it. The structure of uh, you know study and sport and you know making sure you had plenty of your day filled in. Uh, I found that um, I didn't adjust very well to university life after that. Okay. So I went out and got into university where it was completely unstructured. Yeah. Uh, and of course I was socially very immature because I hadn't had the sorts of experiences that most teenage boys have when they're in, you know, normal school and they're going out on the weekends and dating girls and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I tried to cram uh, my whole teenage years into about two or three after I left school. Right. And that was while trying to um, manage a law degree on the side, which I didn't do particularly well. Right. So I and look, I think I think the expectation coming out of school, if I if I knew then what I know now, I would have taken a very very different path. Right. So so in school at that time. Um, the smartest of us were streamed towards um, languages, towards um, uh, towards science and mathematics. So I did very high level mathematics and um, you know physics and chemistry and so mm-hmm. forth. But I also studied Latin, mm-hmm. which is very very handy in sure. this day and age. Yeah. Um, uh, English uh, and so forth. So. Um, and, and there was just an expectation that we go into the professions. Mm-hmm. So it was just a case if you get the highest mark you can out of school, mm-hmm. um, you land in one of the professions, you do medicine or law or something like that, uh, and then your life flows from there. Mm-hmm. So when I left school, I was, I was fortunate to have qualified for uh, any degree I wanted to do in any of the universities. I chose a combined law degree at University of Sydney, uh, and I found that I spent most of my time majoring in beer and rugby. Right. And so um, you made the point earlier that your parents put a lot of value in education and they've mm. sacrificed a lot for you to have the private schooling that you did. So mm. I imagine uh, that would have led to some pretty inv- interesting conversations at home when you uh, were uh, faltering and eventually uh, you know, dropped out of university. Um, well, yes and no. Um, because they were always very supportive, I think, I think you know, mum in particular uh, was never pushy. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, whereas her obvious um, displeasure, I'm sure that she was quietly apoplectic about the whole thing, mm-hmm. but never really said anything. It mm-hmm. was just a case of, you know, I think she had faith that once I got my act together and decided what I wanted to do, I'd pull it off. Yep. Um, so whereas they were disappointed about me dropping out, um, yeah, they were okay with it. They, well, they knew I'd come good. As a fellow university dropout, it took me uh, eight and a half years to get my undergraduate degree. Uh, I can empathise uh, both 
Uh, my parents uh, were from an education background and, and they would have uh, been very similar. It's interesting you raise the, uh, the point um, about uh, if you could have done things differently. And one of my questions was, if you could go back to that boy as he's finishing high school, uh, knowing what you know now, what would you have advised him to do? Um, and perhaps what would you have done differently in relation to your early part of your career? Um, yeah, look, I think it goes. I think it goes back to the way the school curriculum is put together. And whereas I have um, enormous uh, gratitude and respect for uh, the teachers and the schooling system that took me through high school in in Joey's, um, I still think that streaming children that way towards um, certain proclivities just because of some IQ potential uh, is not the way to do it. Mm. Uh, I would have loved to be involved in economics and commerce much earlier in mm -hmm. my life. I think mm. it's probably the thing I would have changed. Okay, right. uh, and probably a lot less around the scientific things. And I didn't find out those preferences really until later on in my career. Because yep. um, obviously, uh, eventually going into being a software developer, um, I found that you know the, the technical work was fun. I was good at it. It was simple. Uh, it didn't cause me much, um, uh, much challenge really. The stuff I really love was the business side of it. I mm -hmm. love the business side. I love the leadership side. Um, I love leading people and taking them forward. And that was where I got my real buzz. But mm -hmm. had I known this sort of stuff earlier and had more exposure to it, then perhaps I might have taken a different path earlier. Okay, sure. Um, but it is what it is, right? So. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, I think we all can look back and uh, have felt we would have made very different choices. Mm. Uh, that's part of uh, making us what we are. Now, um, uh, let's get into your career now. And I suppose there's two reasons that I'm particularly fascinated with your career. And uh, one of the reasons I was very keen to have you on the podcast, I think your, uh, you know, your experience will be of great interest to the people who are listening. Firstly, somebody to move from an IT background into CIO, into a finance role, deputy CFO, into a marketing role, and then into a CEO role is extremely unconventional. Uh, most people get into a career path and they uh, manage their career and they grow, but to have had a career which has moved through such a diverse and you know quite different um, range of skill sets is particularly interesting to me. And secondly, I think one of the things, um, and you know I've written a book about accessing the hidden job market and knowing your career history and how you've made certain moves from one organisation to the next, uh, a lot of it has been in what you would refer to as a hidden job market in that um, your moves have been based on relationships and based on reputation rather than you know what most people would think of which is oh, I saw an ad on Seek and I made an application and, and I got my role in a pretty conventional way. So um, keen to talk you through or listen to you about your career path from you know the early days back in Canberra uh, through to where you are now and uh, some of those uh, pivotal moments and key decisions that you made that enabled you to achieve what you did. Hmm. Yeah, thanks, Richard. Well, um, it was certainly an unconventional path, but um, I think no one uh, that you talked to could have predicted, I think, exactly how their career path was going to go. Um, I, I think the thing for me is um, I wasn't afraid of taking on a challenge and trying something that was going to stretch me a lot, uh, and I found that I was good at it quite early on. I think when it goes back to my, my early roles, particularly when I worked for a um, small boutique consulting firm in Sydney, um, Tangent, uh, which was run by a guy called Rick Anstey, who's a, who's a fabulous person, gave me a lot of opportunities there. Uh, but I learned to be able to go into different companies in different industries and adapt quickly mm -hmm. uh, and work out what was going on in those companies and be able to offer some value to them. Uh, and so I, find, I found I had an aptitude for this. And um, I also got to see a lot about how these different businesses worked and were managed. So what sort of consulting were you doing then? 
Uh, I was doing l- literally technical IT consulting. Okay. So so going in, um, designing software systems, mm-hmm. uh, working on project teams that were mm-hmm. in those businesses, and later on running those project teams. Mm. So um, uh, so it wasn't uh, mainstream business work, but it was mm-hmm. giving me exposure to a whole lot of things and a whole lot of different people in these businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always been extremely fascinated by the people side of it, and I think that um, understanding people, um, being able to listen well, um, being able to add value to them the way they need it, is, is critical to being able to be successful anywhere. Now, when I was young, I had no idea about that. I was arrogant. I was intellectually arrogant. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to go in there and say, look, you guys stand back, I'll show you how to do it, mm-hmm. was my attitude. Um, and even though I was probably pretty good at delivering results through myself, uh, I wouldn't have been good at delivering results through others. Mm. And um, so when are we talking, you know, what, uh, roughly what age were you when oh, you were in I, this role? I would have been in my late 20s, mid, okay. to, mid to late 20s. Okay. Right? So prior to that? Um, prior to that? Uh, well, look, I, I started my uh, first role in the computer industry in 85, so I was 23 years old when I started. Right. Um, so probably a little bit later than some coming straight out of uni. But um, uh, look, I found that I lapped up um, everything I could in mm-hmm. terms of knowledge. And I started off in the banking industry, which mm-hmm. was interesting. Um, learned a fair bit about that as it was in the old days. But um, uh, really the choice I made took me on a more exciting things that gave me more diversity. Mm-hmm. So, so coming through that consulting career, I decided to set up my own business because I figured there was more money in that. Um, and really, uh, my specialty was running, uh, you know, complex, large software projects that you know people struggle to deliver. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's always good to face uh, face you um, face your detractors with a consultant on a stick. Uh, so that was Cornerstone. That was Cornerstone. Right. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So I established that company in the early '90s. And um, look, it really never went anywhere. I didn't really do much with the company. It was just a vehicle for me and a few other guys who were of similar ilk to mm-hmm. to get out there and run these types of projects. And um, funnily enough, even though I was Sydney-based, I was getting more and more work in Canberra because in the 90s they were running a lot of quite large projects in federal mm-hmm. government down there. So I ended up relocating and spending uh, what I call the lost years, mm-hmm. where I spent 10 years in Canberra. So, mm-hmm. and, and look, it was great while I was there. Um, lifestyle was good. The work was um, challenging but not too difficult. Um, I was raising uh, young daughters at the time uh, with my ex-wife down there. Um, I was uh, sickeningly fit. I was running marathons. I was about as fit as any human being could be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had a very good balance of life. But mm-hmm. I realised you know, for quite a while my career was on hold, so to speak. So lost in what, um, you know, how, why do you describe it that way then? It sounds as though you were doing good work and making good money. And, sure. Uh, so what was the lost element? My, my career was going nowhere. Right. So I, I was still learning things and I was becoming better at a whole lot of things, mm-hmm. but my career wasn't progressing because okay. I, was, I was the hired gun that comes in, already expected to know things. Um, I wasn't getting the type of opportunities, nor should I have, but I wasn't getting the type of opportunities that were really developing my career path. Okay. And so what um, was the catalyst then for change? Um, well, a couple of things. The first thing was I realised that um, I was sort of bored doing what I was doing. Um, and I was very, very frustrated at um, not really having control of the wheel. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so as a consultant, even when you're given charge of running a large project, uh, you still are subject to decisions of, you know, managers above you and permanent staff who are um, really seen as being uh, more accountable for what you're doing. Sure. And so, not having that full accountability to really make the changes you want, yeah. uh, and the things you know are really going to make a difference, I found enormously frustrating. Yeah, I think uh, one of uh, the greatest frustrations of a lot of people that I know who've 
moved into a consulting role is exactly that. All care and no responsibility. Yeah, that's right. And, and they actually want to be able to drive and take ownership for the, uh, the elements of their consulting on. So your story uh, in that regard is, you know, um, is quite common from the people that I meet with who are in that situation. So, okay, so um, you, you built this sort of level of frustration and, mm. and decided time for change. So what, yeah. what did you do then? I didn't, I didn't really know what form the change would take um, until one day, it must have been um, 2000, my, uh, my ex-wife was actually from the Gold Coast originally mm-hmm. and uh, she came home from a, from a trip to the Gold Coast visiting a family once and announced that um, she was going to go back to the Gold Coast to live and she was taking the kids and I could do whatever I wanted. Right. So, uh, so that, was, that was interesting. So I had to make some choices around that. <laughs> Quite an um, ultimatum. Well, no, it wasn't. Well, I mean, it was just, a, you know, that was the way it was. And, and look... Um, it wasn't like it was uh, shot out of the blue. Sure. You know, we'd obviously been um, working on the relationship for many years and um, I think both of us realised it was an end and um, she had the courage to move forward with it, which, yep. um, you know, all respect to her for that. Sure. Um, so, uh, but it did it did force me to make some choices because I knew she was going to be Gold Coast based and um, whereas I didn't particularly want to um, target the Gold Coast as my next market, I realised Brisbane was a growing uh, growing business environment up here and a growing, growing city centre with a lot of... Um, People coming up from down south, mm-hmm. so uh, that that was the thing that um, uh, that convinced me to make the choice to actually study my executive MBA, which I was looking at doing for probably about three months prior to that mm-hmm. uh, at uh, the Graduate School of Business at QUT. Mm-hmm. And so uh, and so because if had my ex-wife not decided to move at that point in time, I probably would have ended up doing it elsewhere. Right. And this has become actually a critical decision when you think of those sliding doors moments, the pivotal sure. points in your in your life and career. Uh, that was absolutely one of them, and uh, and so um, I remember because uh, I was a fellow student with you at the time. You were commuting up. Uh, we were studying one week in a month, and you were uh, working in Canberra and basically flying up uh, uh, every month for that weekend, if I recall correctly. Yeah, that's. I, I did that for about the first uh, five or six months. Uh, once we once we started the executive MBA program, but um, given that it was cohort based and it was so structured, uh, once again I fell into the structure very very easily, um, but also um, it was very very easy to manage with my life. Mm-hmm. So uh, so that was good. And then of course I, um, as soon as I got the employment in, in Brisbane, I moved up there straight away after that. Yeah, with uh, quite an iconic uh, Queensland brand. Yeah, yeah, with Mount Isa Mines or MIM as it was. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, an iconic Queensland company, which was good. And uh, funnily enough, you, you talk about uh, the hidden job market and uh, finding opportunities through that, Richard. And I think um, for me, that's uh, no greater no greater example than that one. Um, MIM was doing a blind search uh, mm-hmm. for a CIO, and um, I never even would have heard about it uh, if it weren't for one of my cohort members at yeah. uh, uh, at QUT who came up to me one day and said, "Oh, look, are you still looking for work in Brisbane?" And I said, yes, I am. And he said, oh, well, there's, uh, I know that MIM's looking for a chief information officer. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, that's great. How do you know that? And he said, oh, my wife's the CFO and she's doing the recruiting. Yeah. Now, now Deb O'Toole, uh, who was a CFO, and I have become you know, great friends uh, over the years, and she's one of my great mentors. And um, uh, if it weren't for that, now, admittedly, it took me, took me six months and five job interviews to actually land the job. Yeah. But had it not been for that contact, I never even would have heard about it. Sure. Wouldn't have even known. Yeah. And uh, again, you're not an uncommon story. Uh, I think a lot of people who are in the job market now are saying, 
uh, I'm not seeing the opportunities available and when I'm applying for them through a traditional sort of uh, uh, way, I'm not getting um, the engagement that I was hoping for. But when you go back through people's careers and, you know, exactly like you, a lot of it is because of a relationship which uh, opens up a, a dialogue which uh, obviously turns into an opportunity. So uh, prior to starting at MIM, uh, you were still working in your consulting firm uh, in Canberra uh, or had you actually taken a break then? No, 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 no. I was still working. It came, came up directly from there. So, right. so I literally, I literally closed my business down on the mm -hmm. um, uh, on the Friday and started with MIM on the Monday. Okay, great. And so, uh, in the capacity of CIO, and again through a pretty um, a significant uh, change time at MIM, um, which would have had a whole heap of challenges in relation to new ownership, etc. Talk us through uh, your involvement in that. Sure. So the, the first thing was, um, I think going to work for a mining company was very, very different from my previous experience because I'd been predominantly white collar mm -hmm. uh, in Sydney and uh, Canberra, of course. Um, the culture in mining is very different. There's the um, uh, the sites are all in regional areas and you have the regional based communities that um, normally populate the workforce there. So that was a real learning experience for me. Uh, my first introduction to industrial safety, which is a critical component of running a business like that. Um, but as the CIO, I was really on the periphery. And um, I wasn't in the mainstream of the mining business, but I did learn a lot about the business over the years I was there. Um, the takeover from Extrata was um, extremely interesting because um, it was a relatively new company at that point. It hadn't been, hadn't been together for too long. I think Mick Davis was the first chief executive um, after he fell out of the BHP Billiton merger mm -hmm. a couple of years before. And Extrata started up with the support of Glencore, who now owns Extrata, um, I think, again. Um, but um, but Extrata came in with a blind offer. It was very controversial in the uh, Queensland at the time. Um, everyone, uh, many people, thought that the offer for MIM was uh, was too low. Mm -hmm. um, the board supported the offer, but the chief executive Vince Gorsi at the time uh, was a dissenting voice, mm -hmm. and so it wasn't quite a hostile takeover. It was a it was a supported takeover by the board, mm -hmm. um, but in terms of valuation, it turns out that Extrata got an absolute cracking deal on it, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the timing was perfect. They couldn't have done it better. But Extrata was quite an immature company at that time in terms of their processes and um, uh, just their corporate environment because they'd come from nothing and just acquired uh, a range of businesses. Um, so really, the challenge for me was uh, well, manyfold. Uh, first of all, we had um, a major uh, reshape of the company in terms of its structure. So MIM was quite centrally structured, whereas Extrata worked on the business unit ownership model mm -hmm. and so had a very, very lean corporate. I think at the time they had um, about 35 people in their uh, head office in Switzerland uh, as their corporate support area uh, on a you know multi-billion dollar business. Mm. So very, very lean model mm. um, with most of the accountability pushed down to the business unit heads. So we had, um, we had those issues um, of the restructure. Uh, we actually, in splitting the IT that was really centralised, we had to split it between the copper division and the coal division mainly. Um, the copper division decided to go through a major outsourcing process. So I was running an outsourcing process, a downsizing process, and an integration process all at once. Mm -hmm. um, incredibly challenging, um, incredibly challenging 12 months or so, but I stayed on to do the integration with Xtrata and very much enjoyed it, learned a lot out of it. It was, mm -hmm. it was a great experience. Mm, great. And then uh, from there, moving into the transport industry. Um, yeah, which was which was an unusual move, actually. Um, I wasn't expecting to go this direction, but I decided to take a little bit of time off, which I did. Um, it was a, a very tough few years with, uh, with MIM, and it was also one of the most challenging um, periods of my life personally as well, because 
I think um, that was the time in my life where I really required stamina and resilience. Um, so if you just look at the things that were lining up, of course there was the um, uh, going into a new role in a new industry as, a, as an executive, my first executive role. Uh, there was the takeover by Extrata. Um, I was studying my executive MBA, which was taking a fair bit of time. Mm. Um, and I was also getting pretty good grades as well, which was, which, which was surprising and useful. Um, I was for the first part of a commuting from the Gold Coast because when I first moved up, I was on the Gold Coast for six months yep. um, and spending, you know, whatever that is, 12, you know, 16, 18 hours a week commuting. Um, and uh, I was going through the separation with my wife. So mm -hmm. all of that was happening at once. Sure. And um, there could have been any number of times that I could have opted out of one of them. Yep. Um, and the most obvious one was the study. I mean, I yep. could, have, could have easily opted out of that and just said, I'll pick it up later on. Um, had I done that, given my previous track record, I doubt I would have picked it up again. Mm. So, um, so I really committed myself to finishing that. And the thing that was ringing in my head was, if I can't actually get through this with all that I've got going on, then maybe the career path that I think I've got in store for myself isn't for me. Right. Because I realised I would have to have that level of tolerance and resilience and capacity mm -hmm. if I wanted to go into the sorts of roles sure. I thought I was going to go into. Yeah. So, so that was really a pivotal time for me. So do you think that that was actually uh, consciously in your thinking then? Oh, absolutely. Right. Okay. Absolutely. It had to be, yeah. Right. So basically... Um, I have to prove to myself that I can manage all of these competing interests and get great outcomes across the board. Otherwise, I'm not up for it. No, that's right. That's yeah. right. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Well, it would have. It certainly would have shattered my confidence at yeah. least. Okay. Uh, and I would have been a lot less confident about going for those next roles had mm. I not had I not done that. And certainly, my ability to adapt quickly with a lot of other things going on and to be successful in that mm -hmm. in that world where I'd adapted. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then uh, into NTI. Yes, yeah, so National Transport Insurance, uh, it actually came out of the blue, uh, once again with the connection I had, um, and uh, this person who knew I was um, just starting to get into the job market again said to me, look, there's a guy who's running a company down, um, it was actually based in Springwood, yep. he said it's one of the, um, he's one of the best CEOs in Queensland, mm -hmm. he said you just need to meet him and have a chat to him. And I met this guy, Wayne Patterson, and, um, and Wayne was fantastic, he's very laid back, um, a very experienced insurance executive. And um, he basically sold me on this business because um, it was a, a very much a differentiated, differentiated play. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, if you go to one of the large general insurers and you want to insure your truck, they'll say, okay, it's a truck, go for your life. Mm -hmm. um, but NTI understood the risk profile difference between you know, a red Mack truck driving long haul to Perth and a, and a, and a blue eye Suzu doing refrigerated short haul in Sydney, right? Mm -hmm. So we knew all the risk profiles and were able to price it really accurately. Mm -hmm. So it was a great competitive advantage. Um, and, uh, and I got into that small business because it was agile, because um, it was gonna be a completely different thing. And working for a guy like Wayne, I knew I was gonna learn a lot. Mm -hmm. So I went in there and um, I told him my expectations for where my career path was heading. And I sort of had uh, an understanding with him that I was gonna go in initially as the CIO and then I was going to understudy him and learn the business and eventually succeed into the CEO role at NTI. Mm -hmm. um, that didn't quite work out. I went in there and sort of realised after about um, three months that the amount of work that needed to be done on the major systems and processes in the organisation was significant. Um, it was quite an immature organisation in itself and didn't have any of that big system and process um, thinking and structure. Mm -hmm. And so um, I sat down with Wayne over lunch and just said, mate, this is not going to work out the way we actually thought it was. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to be buried in this thing for a couple of years if you want to get this done. And so we had an agreement about um, whether or not I'd stay or go. Mm -hmm. He wanted me to stay to, um, to help them with their major core systems replacement, which I did. 
uh, but that was all encompassing. Uh, I think at the time I was spending um, uh, one week in Brisbane and then one week in Auckland, mm -hmm. where our software developer was, and uh, very, very intense, once again, very intense couple of years. But obviously doing that, I didn't really get a chance to get in the mainstream business of you know underwriting and claims and so forth. I understood it very well, mm. but you know there was no way I was going to be experienced enough to step into the CEO role sure. when I had other yep. very experienced insurance executives working for Wayne, high-quality people. Yep. And uh, the uh, the guy who eventually succeeded Wayne as uh, CEO was a guy called Tony Clark. Mm -hmm. um, very much respect Tony, a great executive. Um, he's the obvious choice for the role, and you know I would have made exactly the same choice if I was Wayne. Sure. Yeah. So there for a couple of years, hmm. and then, uh, as I understood it, uh, you negotiated that part of your exiting was to go to Harvard and do their program. Yeah, it wasn't actually part of my exiting. What it was was um, I'd said to Wayne, look, I'll stay and do this job for you, but um, at the end of it, there's got to be some sort of career development carrot for me because I can do this in my sleep. I can probably do it for more money somewhere else. Yep. Um, but because I've committed to you, I'll get the job done, but you need to help me out with my career carrot. Mm -hmm. So I actually was consciously and actively... Um, developing my career even at that point. Mm -hmm. And so Wayne had said to me two things. He said, okay, the first is that um, uh, after you get this done, because we literally replaced all of the underwriting and claim systems from the ground up, mm -hmm. um, and he said, after that, I'll move you into a business executive role so that you've got an opportunity to, mm -hmm. to demonstrate your capability in the business. Um, I also negotiated with him uh, that uh, if I was successful in the role and we got everything done uh, according to plan and under budget, probably the most capitally efficient piece of um, investment I've ever seen in my career so far. It was unbelievable. They did it on the smell of an oily rag because it was only a small company. Um, but um, uh, I agreed uh, with Wayne that he'd send me to do the advanced management program at Harvard mm -hmm. uh, after completing all that work, which I did. Yeah. And uh, I mean, certainly a big investment in terms of time and the expense of doing that program. But many people who have done that program regarded as being a cornerstone of their future success. Uh, how important was it to you, uh, the Harvard program that you did? Oh, look, it, it turned out to be absolutely critical for a couple of reasons. I think um, the first thing was, and it was uh, just just for those who um, who don't know what it is, it was a um, two-month program uh, and they work you pretty hard. So mm. it's uh, probably 16 to 18 hours a day, six days a week in study. Mm. So that's pretty pretty tough. Sure. It's a good routine, um, but, uh, but very, very great... Um, experienced, capable, uh, heavy-hitting cohort of people. Mm -hmm. So 160-odd people from 35 different countries. Mm -hmm. uh, you end up in these sort of study living groups of eight people where they cordon you off in this in this major complex, and um, you do all of your group analysis work with those eight people. Mm -hmm. And massive uh, variety in those eight people, they, they put these uh, groups together really, really uh, carefully. Um, uh, gender diversity, uh, racial diversity, functional diversity, industry diversity, so you get a fantastic mix mm -hmm. of all those things in, in your working groups. And geographic diversity. And too. geographic diversity, yeah, yeah sure. Yeah, absolutely. So um, uh, so really interesting. There were uh, probably um, uh, 13 Aussies there, mm -hmm. um, 11 people from Singapore, um, only 35 Americans, but wow. uh, you know, great, great from all over the world. And so um, I managed to build an, an extremely good network of global contacts through that, okay. which has been important. And... Um, Coming back from two months at Harvard, everyone would say to you, oh, what did you learn? And I go, oh, I don't know, stuff. You know, it's not, <laughs> you, know, you sort of expect a more inspiring answer than that. Um, but it wasn't so much the things specifically that I learned, even though um, every day in my role since then, things have come up that obviously hark mm. back to that time and, sure. and the things I've learned. But it's more about changing the way you think. Mm -hmm. Fundamentally changes the way you approach problems. Mm -hmm. 
fundamentally makes you calmer and more confident. Mm -hmm. Um, And certainly the confidence where I was sort of quite junior in that cohort, I I guess all in all, but um, the confidence you could mix it with those guys and and go toe to toe with them without any problems mm-hmm. gives you an enormous amount of confidence. Absolutely. So I don't I don't have any hesitation walking into any boardroom, mm-hmm. any any executive team, any stakeholder group. It, it just doesn't phase me at all mm-hmm. because of that. Okay. Um, so there for eight weeks. Uh, on a personal note, I think there was quite a, a good personal time for you as well. Well, it wasn't bad actually. So just because um, <laughs> just because I didn't think I was working hard enough and um, and had too much time on my hands. Uh, I did actually end up meeting my current wife there. Right. So I was about three weeks into the program. Um, we all go a bit stir crazy on a Saturday night after all of the um, heavy heavy work of the week. Uh, and I was out for dinner. It sounds like the start of a joke, but I was out for dinner with a Japanese guy, a South African, an English guy, an Aussie. And um, after dinner, we ended up uh, going to a bar that someone had recommended to us in uh, Newberry Street in Boston. And uh, there met my current wife, Kathy. There you go. Destiny. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And from absolutely. what I understand from Harvard as well, uh, there's an expectation that you've got quite a, uh, a budget for the uh, wine each night. There's a lot of uh, one-upmanship in terms of uh, who's ordering the nicest wine. Is that right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, and look, I think, um, I think the thing about that program is we've all worked out reasonably quickly what the purpose of the program was. And everyone thinks you go to Harvard just because you're going to sit there and study cases and you know, learn from the academics and so forth, which you do. Um, but we realised that um, some of the best learnings came from, you know, the, the midnight glass of wine in one of the other living groups where you had a few people who liked to have a, a little tipple at the end of the day all getting together and talking about their mm. experiences. Sure. And that was really, really valuable. And that's where the best relationships were formed as well. Right. But um, on, it's, it's probably worth saying on the way in there, I remember um, uh, one of the uh, participants, was probably one of the, one of the uh, leading guys there, a guy called Anthony Fry. Um, who was uh, last year made um, chairman of the English Premier League Soccer over okay. in the UK, which is a pretty pretty prestigious post. But he was a merchant banker, and I remember sitting down with him, and he said to me um, in about the first week, um, so what are, you, what are your goals for the program? I said, mate, I'm just going to do the card. Right. And he said, what do you mean? I said, I'm going to do the card. Anything that's on, I'll do it. You know, we're, go- we're going to see a... Uh, you know, a show, sure, I'll go. We're going to see a Red Sox game, sure, I'm in it. You know? yep. We're going to set up a rowing team, yep, I'll be on it. Right. So, so I just said I will do everything that's on offer and I'll sleep when I get home after two months. It reminds me of when we went to China as part of the EMBA <laughs> program. Uh, <Yeah. laughs> uh, much the same. Okay, so uh, back to Brisbane and then uh, into QR Limited, uh, mm. Queensland Rail. Uh, talk about your uh, stepping into that role and obviously in the period that you worked for them and the fact that uh, you know they demerged, went to a list and you had quite a substantial uh, change of role mm. a couple of times. Yeah. Uh, talk us through that. Yeah, very, very interesting. I have to say that looking back on those, I was at um, QR and its um, successor companies for five years, definitely the most accelerated learning. And I'd just come off the back of um, Harvard Business School. uh, And I think the context of experience and education working in conjunction with each other is really, really important. It's one of the great learnings for me because I see a lot of people who have lots and lots of really good education, but I don't think it's as valuable if you don't have the context to apply it in immediately. It's the use it or lose it principle. And so coming off the back of Harvard, I didn't, um, I didn't immediately leave NTI. I did six months there, um, probably a little bit longer as their head of strategy. Um, I did a full strategic review of the organisation, which um, helped to underpin the foundations of what they did next, um, talking to Tony in retrospect. But um, I got a tap on the shoulder from Debo Toole, who'd hired me at um, MIM. Yep. And she said, um, uh, she just said, how are you going? I hadn't heard from her for a long time. Uh, and I said, yeah, good, Deb, how are you? She said, yeah, good. What are you up to? Not much, not much. Um, where are you now, Deb? Um, don't hang up. I'm at QR. Mm. 
and it was sort of that perception that QR was, uh, you know, a government-owned um, monopoly railway. Yeah, grey uh, uh, cardigan uh, uh, ab- Absolutely, yeah, and it had had a terrible reputation, although um, what I worked out was that if Deb was there, then it was a good place to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I met with her. She spoke very strongly of Lance Hockridge, who'd been brought in as uh, chief executive there. He'd just come back from um, being president of Blue Scope Steel in the, uh, the Americas, and um, she sold me on the vision of taking this government-owned corporation, um, engineering run, um, unwieldy and bureaucratic, through to being a commercial enterprise that could then be taken to a privatisation transaction. Now, in those days, we didn't use the P word because it was on the nose with everyone in the electorate, mm-hmm. but um, there was an expectation that we go to privatisation at some point. And she originally hired me to run shared services, and um, shared services was a beast. It was um, had IT, uh, procurement, property... Uh, project services, uh, all the back office stuff for HR and payroll, the usual usual gamut. Um, but there were a thousand people there, uh, with an annual budget of uh, about two hundred and fifty million for shared services. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, by the time we actually handed it over post privatisation, um, shared services had about two hundred and fifty people uh, and an annual budget of just over a hundred million. So uh, without dropping any of the services, without reducing quality or it was just through getting the efficiencies and, um, you know, bringing a new approach to it. So mm-hmm. uh, so it was pretty interesting work just doing that. So that's when I first um, realised my penchant for reform, which um, which I really enjoy doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, probably about 12 months after I started and I'd sort of got the shared services reform underway, the privatisation was announced. Uh, and originally it was going to be um, split up and trade sale. And so Deb and uh, her team went offline to start working on that and she wanted me to act in the CFO role. Mm-hmm. So she set me up in, in a role called Deputy CFO where I took the day-to-day running mm-hmm. and she went off to do the transaction. Which uh, for somebody who doesn't come from an accounting slash finance background, I mean, that's quite a leap of faith for them to uh, to give you that role and know that you'll run it with a steady hand. Yeah, absolutely. And, and look, Deb, Deb wasn't going to Mars. She was mm-hmm. only around the corner just working, sure. on, working on the privatisation, so I had good oversight. And I had very good people underneath me. And I think um, uh, one of the learnings from that is you hire really good people and get out of their way. Mm-hmm. And so we had very strong finance people there. Um, I was very um, financially literate, of course, from my MBA and Harvard experience, so I'm very comfortable around the finances. Um, but of course, coming from my background, I'm probably more commercial and financial, mm-hmm. and so bringing the commercial bent to the finance portfolio was actually very useful. Okay. Um, so, for example, um, I ran the uh, reform of both um, procurement and capital productivity in the organisation, mm-hmm. and literally saved billions of dollars with these teams we had working on those things in uh, in the space of about two two and a half years. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so being able to get into something like that and working with the best, you know, we had. Um, teams and guidance from McKinsey mm-hmm. who are in working with us on that using their methodologies mm-hmm. and, um, <clears throat> yeah, excuse me, really, really good, really good experience. Right. And so um, obviously at that point uh, the commencement of uh, the uh, listing process uh, mm. and the business um, emerging and you moving across into the horizon business yeah. and then into a very different role family again. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, so taking on a sales and marketing role. Um which was very interesting because I hadn't done that sort of thing before, but a couple of things were in my favour. Um, first thing was that I demonstrated uh, inside the organisation that I was very commercially astute. Second thing was that I could build relationships uh, and uh, work across boundaries very, very easily. Mm-hmm. Um, and third, that um, I was quite articulate and could mm-hmm. actually 
hold a straight conversation with anyone at any level. So mm-hmm. um, I think uh, when we started talking about next roles for me, um, Lance saw my potential in uh, this type of role and took a leap of faith in it. Mm-hmm. But I think no one could have predicted how successful it would actually be, that move. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly not me. Um, there's a lot of luck involved in this stuff. And, um, you know, I'd be the first one to say there's been a, a lot of very lucky things in my career that have helped me move forward and a lot of opportunities that have come up that if I hadn't had those, I couldn't have capitalised on them and got to where sure. I am. Yep. Uh, the luck in this role was that we just happened to have uh, three or four major contract deals, and these are all multi-year deals for, for a company like QR. Uh, their business at QR National is um, hauling bulk commodities mm-hmm. from the mine sites to the ports, and the mm-hmm. biggest part of that is the central Queensland coal network. Mm-hmm. And so we had massive, massive um, growth coming through in New South Wales as well. But the three deals that I was responsible for were um, the BMA deal, BHP Mitsubishi Alliance, mm-hmm. and that was the largest contract that, that Horizon held, probably um, oh, 40% of its total business. Mm-hmm. And that contract just came up for 10-year renewal at that point in time. Right. So it was fortunate timing for me. Sure. Uh, we also had Rio Tinto with their Blair Athol and uh, Claremont Mines. Uh, up in the northern Bowen and um, Whitehaven Coal in mm-hmm. the Gunnedah Basin because they just acquired the Malls Creek mine. Mm-hmm. And so uh, so on two of those um, deals, we were sort of rank underdogs and we ended up winning 100% of all those tonnes that were on offer. Mm. Um, BMA in particular was, um, was said to be splitting their load because uh, if you can look at it from their point of view, they've spent years and years telling their senior executive how fat, dumb and lazy... QR was hauling yep. their coal and how it was all our fault. Because you had essentially a monopoly. Absolutely. Yeah. And then when uh, Pacific National came into the market a number of years ago, uh, there was always the expectation they'd want to at least split their business between Pacific National and QR National. Mm-hmm. So uh, so when we won 100% of the tonnes, I think everyone was very surprised. Certainly the, the uh, analysts and media commentators were, uh, and it was a massive win. Okay. So. Okay. And uh, and so then, obviously, uh, the move into your current role as CEO. Mm. Um, so how did that uh, come about? Uh, once again, um, I'd done a little bit of work with um, a gentleman by the name of Ross Rolfe, who was mm-hmm. the chairman of CS Energy at the time. Yeah. And um, when uh, Ross came in here as chairman in mid-2012, um, decided to shake the place up a bit and was looking for uh, a new chief executive, mm-hmm. and so he approached me at the beginning of 2013 to um, uh, to actually run the company and take mm-hmm. on the role. Mm-hmm. And once again, I had to go through the process and satisfy sure. uh, Ross and the other directors that I was up for it. But um, because of what Ross had seen me do in my days at Horizon, mm-hmm. um, he was very comfortable with me going into the role here, even though I didn't have energy uh, mm-hmm. experience on my CV. Mm-hmm. Which uh, you know, coming back to that point, if you look about the move from. Uh, uh, from Canberra into Mount Isa and then from Mount Isa Mines into NTI and NTI into Horizon. Um, I mean, each of these moves have been because of um, your um, relationships and because of obviously your competency and your reputation. Uh, but very interesting that if you look back through that entire process, not once were you actually applying for a role where you saw an ad in the paper or on the, um, on the internet. No, no, a- absolutely. And look, mm. I have also realised the um, the value of having someone to help in the search space. Sure. Um, and as um, as one of the search companies say to me, my, my strength is my agility. So uh, so I've, I've demonstrated the ability to move between functions and industries very successfully. So yeah, I think that the, you know that's what. Um, you know, getting to the the um, the crux of this conversation, what do you think it is about you and your attributes that's enabled you to be able to move, you know, across these functions so um, 
successfully and not only um, being able to achieve results, but then for an organisation and at the end of the day, CEO of a uh, substantial government-owned corporation is a big gig, um, to be able to demonstrate that you can then step into that role of CEO and, and do it well. Yeah, so so a couple of things are very important in this, Richard. I think the first thing is you've really got to understand your own personal strengths and weaknesses so you really understand what you're good at. Um, and uh, I wouldn't take on a role. It looks like um, perhaps I'm not very selective, but I certainly wouldn't take on a role where I didn't believe that I had the capability with my skill set to actually do it. So, for example, uh, if I was approached to take on a CEO role, wouldn't matter the size, wouldn't matter how much money, wouldn't matter where it was, um, if... Uh, it was a steady as she goes role. Mm-hmm. If it was, you know, here's, here's where we are. Mm. Um, we just need someone to take it through the next phase and keep the lights on. That's certainly not something that would interest me. So I've I've worked out that I'm really good in a turnaround situation. Yep. Um, I like growth, but turnarounds where my real strength is. You're a change agent. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so understanding that's good. The second thing is uh, working out what are your generic skills that are applicable across contexts. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the things I learned um, when I was consulting and it's carried through and it's just strengthened as the years have gone on. Mm-hmm. Um, so I understand the things that I can do and bring to an organisation. Um, and uh, funnily enough, we've just had a new chairman appointed at CS Energy um, over the last few days. Mm-hmm. And the first conversation we had, he was surprised that I didn't have any energy experience because he'd seen the um, vastly improved results in CS Energy. He yep. was a little bit surprised that a CEO didn't have any energy background. Yep. And I said, look, Jim, a couple of things. The first thing is uh, I've got an outstanding team of people mm-hmm. and, and I've got guys with very, very deep sectoral and uh, functional experience in the areas that I've got them appointed to. And one of the secrets is you get the best people you possibly can on your team. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the, um, the funny downside of that is that on any given day, at least half my executive team think they can do my job better than me. Sure. And that's exactly what you want. You want yeah. people who are driven, who are hungry, who are... Um, competent, capable, really know their stuff, uh, and it always looks easy from the level below, you know that. Mm-hmm. So um, so that's good. So I've got a great team of guys. Um, they know what value I bring to them because I look at the things that uh, they can't look at, so my, my very broad industry experience, so I can bring ideas from other sectors. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really about uh, turning this company around from being uh, very much an engineering-based company very much a company whose mission always used to be just to provide electricity for Queensland into a company where we are commercially conscious, where we make money, uh, where we are prudent about the investments we make, particularly in terms of capital efficiency, um, where we uh, test ourselves all the time on value, where we don't do the things that don't add value, and that Mm -hmm. means stopping stuff, Mm -hmm. and that's one of the hardest things to do in organisations like this is to stop things that are going on that aren't adding value, Mm -hmm. um, and to make sure that ultimately we're looking at the things that are going to make us different. Mm. Um, It all starts, um, interestingly, with safety, because if you can't run a safe workforce, then you're not going to have the discipline to do anything else at all. Sure. So so we drive that very, very hard, and that's one of the things I learned, particularly at, at Horizon, uh, which has held me in really good stead. Okay. And I suppose one of the things that uh, the uh, CEOs who are listening to this will be interested in, you uh, you had a relationship with your prior chair um, uh, prior to commencing. Uh, he had a view of your talents, which is why you were um, brought into the role. No doubt you've had a great relationship with him. Now he's left and you're starting a new relationship with a new chair. What, what's your view on what are the attributes attributes necessary to ensure that the CEO and the chair have a great um, relationship and a supportive relationship? Um, yeah, that's a really good question. So, um, so uh, I'll have to open up by saying watch this space. Um, I think the new chairman, uh, the first meeting we had was last week. 
Um, I was very impressed with the first meeting in terms of his approach, which is great. Mm -hmm. uh, I think he'll be uh, an outstanding chair for this business. Uh, I think, uh, as I said to him, uh, from my perspective, uh, what you see is what you get. I'm very, very open with the board. Uh, I always make sure that they've got visibility of what we're doing and they have good knowledge of what's going on. Otherwise, when something blows up, it's just my problem. Sure. Uh, so, um, so they'll always have visibility of what's going on in an appropriate way. We don't want uh, we don't want non-executive directors in the management of the company, but in an appropriate way at arm's length, so they understand all the issues and they understand what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, they get a warts and all view, so they'll I think very quickly, as as I've found in the past, very quickly be able to trust me. Uh, mm -hmm. That I'm going to tell them what's going on mm -hmm. properly. Very I'm not, I'm not, yeah, that's right. I'm not going to, I'm not going to sugarcoat things or, sure. or present it to them with rose-coloured glasses. And I'm always on my guys in my executive leadership team to challenge ourselves specifically in that regard. Mm -hmm. Okay, are we just believing our own bullshit, or are we actually doing this the right way? Mm -hmm. uh, how much traction are we getting? Mm -hmm. You know, we say that things are going better, but where's our evidence for that? Mm -hmm. Which is one of my favourite questions, by right. the way. It's a killer question. Where's the evidence? What, what's your evidence for that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I can't remember where uh, I learned that one from, but that's one that I use a lot too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, um, obviously, formal education has been a very big part of assisting you in achieving the career that you've had. And, and you know, you uh, we've spoken about that already. What about more informal uh, mentoring relationships or coaching relationships? Uh, you know, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. Uh, look, I've always been very lucky to have uh, great people around me to help me and guide me. Um, Deb O'Toole, as I mentioned before, was a fantastic person, and, and to this day I lean on her for a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, not frequently; it's not a it's not a regular mentoring relationship, but I'll call her, you know, infrequently with just to sound her out on things to see what her views are. Mm -hmm. um, Paul Scurra, who I worked for at Horizon in my sales and marketing role, um, Paul's probably one of the best leaders I've worked for. He's an absolutely outstanding leader and a sales and marketing professional. So I learned a hell of a lot from him about mm -hmm. um, how to actually um, position one of those major deals in a a major business-to-business -business environment. Um, uh, great industrial relations mentor, Bob Barnes, who um, who was actually just announced he's stepping down from the chief executive role at Wicket. Um, Bob's a fantastic guy. I have uh, so much respect for him, and uh, he's just a, a great character, just absolutely no nonsense. Um, but Bob worked with Chris Corrigan on the uh, waterfront reforms in the 90s, mm -hmm. okay. uh, and Bob's got a huge amount of industrial relations sure. experience fr from that. So. If ever I've got a question about how to deal with the unions or an industrial issue, Bob's the guy I call. So, um, but but I get so much out of so many people I have conversations with. And mm. um, uh, interestingly, Richard, which is not something that would be intuitively obvious, is that um, I also mentor a number of people myself, mm -hmm. and it's incredible how much I learn from them. Yeah. Uh, on a you know every time I meet with them, I'm learning something from them. So uh, even if it's just market intelligence from their industries and right. so forth, I'm, I'm always learning. So. Uh, and I think that underpins everything. It's just that thirst for knowledge. Mm -hmm. So whether it's in deciding to pick up and read various books mm -hmm. um, that, are, that are going to challenge me, mm -hmm. um, the people I mix with uh, and where I choose to spend my time. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, for uh, any of your listeners who get this far in the tape, um, certainly a book that's well worth reading is a book um, by a guy called Michael Sandel, and it's called What Money Can't Buy, okay. uh, about the moral limits of markets. And it's a very, very challenging book for a guy like me who's completely market-driven mm -hmm. um, to actually read that and, and consider the moral limitations that markets have. Mm. So uh, so fantastic read, very, very easy to read, even though this guy's a, a Harvard academic, um, but uh, just an outstanding read. So I'd recommend that to anyone who's listening. Oh, that's great. I, uh, I was interested to ask uh, what you're reading at the moment. Uh, and uh, I think 
there is such great education out there. You don't necessarily have to go to Harvard, although if we had the money and the time, I'm sure most of us would love the opportunity. Uh, but uh, it's good to know, you know what you've been reading that's been instrumental in what you're doing now in your business. What about in terms of, uh, as you mentioned earlier, that you uh, kind of tested yourself in terms of having the... Um, the strength and intelligence and fortitude to actually fulfill a role like this, but how do you keep yourself motivated? No doubt there are some dark moments uh, where you you know you question what you're doing and and your ability to actually deliver. What what are the ways that you keep yourself motivated through those periods? Um, look, I think I think having the good people around me is is really important. Um, I find it absolutely critical that I am the person that is the calmest under pressure, uh, the most decisive that I can possibly be, and I understand how much the organisation relies upon that. So I don't really have um, those sorts of crises of confidence. I think the big black cloud for me is how you take an organisation like this from where it is today running predominantly coal-fired power stations mm -hmm. uh, to becoming part of the new world with mm -hmm. renewables and so forth because yep. the environment is so uncertain, the policy framework's uncertain, uh, the technology is changing so quickly. We're going to see disruption, like we have in, uh, you know, smartphones, in telecommunications, in a whole range of industries mm -hmm. that have moved very, very rapidly. And this is going to be no exception. Sure. Uh, but navigating a path through that from where we are, obviously, when you start to diversify your income streams, and the, it's not a massive business, but um, you know, we do uh, generate over half a billion dollars of revenue each year, and it's a two billion dollar balance sheet. So it's it's a little bit hard to replace that sort of revenue from startup uh, streams within the organisation. Sure. Um, so, so that occupies my mind a lot, and I think uh, the new chair certainly has some ideas around that, which you discussed with me the other day, and I'm mm -hmm. looking very forward to uh, to working with him on that. Okay, great. Yeah. And so um, here we are now. It's uh, getting towards the end of 2015. Mm. What's the future look like? You know, where do you imagine you might be in 10 years from now? Uh, look, in 10 years from now, I think I think uh, my personal um, drivers are uh, having impact. Number mm -hmm. one, first mm -hmm. and foremost. So the more impact I can have from a leadership role, uh, and of course I mean that as positive impact, but the more impact I can have in a leadership role, the better. Mm -hmm. So I'd imagine from here going on to uh, larger organisations, bigger challenges mm -hmm. uh, as chief executive. Okay, okay. Uh, whether that's here or somewhere else on the globe. So obviously being married to a, to an American, um, working over there is not a problem. Sure. Uh, and I do have a lot of uh, really good contacts over mm -hmm. there, both my time at Harvard and of course from Kathy's network from her, her college and uh, other industry contacts over there. Sure. And do you see any further formal education playing a part in, in that or are you pretty much done and dusted in that regard? Uh, look, I'd, I'd never sort of say I'm, I'm all done. It depends what, um, depends what comes up. I think um, it'll probably take more the form of uh, refresher programs, short ones to actually um, keep myself up to date with yep. what's going on in market. So for example, uh, when I was at um, HBS, that was 2007, so it was pre-GFC. Mm -hmm. So the financial um, structure of the world sort of changing fairly rapidly. Mm -hmm. um, China's slowed down and uh, what's happening in the banking system there, obviously, that's going to have an impact. So I think um, having exposure to that information, the best way I can consume that is fantastic. Obviously, do a lot of reading around that from different sources, um, but uh, it's probably more likely I'll be learning more from my mentors, mm -hmm. from the situations I'm in, and from the general reading I do on a daily basis around what's mm. happening in markets and, and global economics. Sure. So okay. I, I read The Economist every week. Um, you know, that's always uh, good to keep you in touch with what's going on in the world and have, uh, have a pretty firm view on it. 
must be one of their five readers. <laughs> I am, but you know, interestingly enough, I just uh, one of my executives who I, I found was um, struggling with his written communication. He's a good communicator, but he mm-hmm. struggles to write well. Um, and so um, it occurred to me that what he should do is um, learn from the best. Right. And so I've got him subscribing to The Economist and reading it just from the perspective sure. of how do you actually write complex concepts mm. uh, in a simple way that anyone can understand. Absolutely. And that's really what that does. So, yeah, great. So it's more a you know, learning experience. All um, right. Excellent. And, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about your work and about the things that you've been doing professionally, but obviously there's more uh, to Martin more than purely being a CEO. What else do you have going on in your life? What do you, what do you like to do when you're not at work? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, red wine plays a big part of that. Yes. Um, my, my wife and I are both, uh, both avid uh, wine connoisseurs. Um, we we do enjoy that. We love sport, mainly watching these days. My mm-hmm. dodgy old back doesn't allow me to do anything else at my age, but um, uh, but certainly um, I've uh, lucked out in marrying uh, a woman who loves uh, all the American sports: football, baseball, hockey, uh, as well as rugby. So mm-hmm. I'm a big rugby man. So um, so we spend a bit of time watching sport. Uh, a lot of really close friends here that we get out with. My daughters are now growing, so they're both in Sydney, so mm-hmm. they're less um, le- spending less time with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we do enjoy uh, light exercise where we can get it in, so just trying to maintain a reasonably healthy balance. Sure. I suppose, uh, you know, uh, fulfilling the role means that you need to remain healthy and, and vital and have plenty of petrol in the tank. Yeah. Are there any particular things you do in that regard? Um, no, I recently gave up coffee though, and that's been really interesting. I don't get the um, I don't get the um, uh, afternoon drowsies anymore. Okay, uh, I'm much more level throughout the whole day. And okay. I only used to drink coffee in the morning, but mm-hmm. uh, but since I've given that up, I'm much more level through the day. I find I have much more energy and much mm. more active. I do get plenty of sleep. I get um, six hours a night, mm-hmm. um, which I find is just the optimum for me to keep me going. Yep. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I try to look after myself just to keep everything in balance. Oh, well, that's excellent. Well, look, uh, Martin, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Uh, from your side, is there anything else that you wanted to add or any other points that you think is important to make? Um, no, look, I don't think so. Um, just just a couple of things that I think are critical in um, in getting to where I've got to. I think, I think leadership isn't so much about what you do, it's about who you are and learning to be um, transparent, open, fallible in front of your people I think is really important. So everyone here knows that I don't have all the answers and that's mm-hmm. important. Um, I can ask all the dumb questions because I'm not afraid of looking dumb. Um, but uh, but also realising that everyone's got something to contribute. doesn't matter what their job is. Um, I learn a huge amount of this um, about this business from spending time out in the operations and talking to guys who are working spanners. Sure. Uh, and I find out what's really going on. So um, so you can learn something from everyone, and I think that's a, having a learning attitude and a transparent approach, I think, really serves you well in whatever you do. Mm. Look, um, knowing you for as long as I have, and, and certainly your reputation in the market, I think that one of the things that you do particularly well is be friendly you know whether it's uh, the uh, person serving you coffee uh, in the coffee shop although obviously not drinking coffee now right mm. through to uh, your relationships with your peers across industry and and uh, the board community and so on I mean Martin Moore is regarded as a, a good guy and I think that passing the good bloke test uh, or whatever the female version of that is I'm not sure uh, is so important um, because it's not just about career success it's doing it in a way that you still can go home at night and feel good about yourself and the relationships you have uh, with others within your broader um, community of stakeholders. So, hmm. well, look, uh, thanks. Absolutely. So, well, just just on that, Richard, just before we close up, I think I think that is important. It's, it, it costs nothing to be kind and generous and um, uh, and happy with everyone, right? Which is which is easy. Uh, interestingly, though, the point I wanted to make is in a leadership role. Uh, the mantra has to be respect before popularity. 
Absolutely. So I see a lot of leaders who like to be popular mm-hmm. and, and won't do the hard things because of that. So you've mm-hmm. got to find that balance. And I think as long as that balance is there, then being friendly and open and, and you know willing to engage with people is a really important attribute, as you said. Excellent. Yeah. Well, thanks, Martin. Really appreciate you uh, taking the time. I'm sure the people who listen will uh, have learned a lot and uh, no doubt there will be people reaching out to you to want to connect in with you. Um, I'll put a link in to the various organisations you've worked for so that people can have have a look at those uh, websites just to get a bit of a feel for those businesses. Um, no doubt you're on LinkedIn and you've got a LinkedIn uh, profile. Um, Martin is also part of our broader CEO incubator community on LinkedIn. So uh, please, if you're listening to this and you're an aspiring, you're an incumbent C-suite executive, uh, join that group, the CEO incubator. And uh, thanks. Have a great day. Thanks, Richard. Pleasure. Well, I really enjoyed that conversation with Martin. Obviously, he and I have known each other for a long time, so it made the conversation a bit easier than perhaps it would have been if he'd been a complete stranger to me. But one of the things I really enjoyed about that and found very insightful was when Martin was talking about how earlier in his career, he basically stress test himself to make sure that he had what it took to be able to fulfill the role of being a CEO in a larger organization and have the tenacity and the optimism and the courage and I suppose the energy to fulfill that role. And I think that that's a great lesson for people who are listening. Certainly, it made me think about whether many people actually do that. A lot of people end up in these roles probably without testing themselves to see if it's what they actually want. And so I think if there's one takeaway from that discussion with Martin, that was it for me. Anyway, I really look forward to having you along to my next uh, podcast and uh, those in the future. Thanks for your attention and I'd really appreciate any feedback, uh, any questions or any comments which you'll be able to make. Uh, in the uh, show notes and certainly there'll be a range of links there both to Martin, his LinkedIn profile, the organisations he's worked for as well as Arate Executive and the CEO Incubator. Thanks and have a great day. Bye.